Alrighty, well, if you got a Bible, we're going to use it tonight. Let's go Luke chapter 24. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Zach Everly. I'm the college director here on staff at Anthem. Hey, Noah. Um, Luke chapter 24, uh, go ahead and put a finger there because we won't, we won't jump in immediately. Um, but um, tonight what we're doing is we're kicking off, this is the first sermon of a four-week series that we're going to do. Uh, the title of it is, It's Not a Question of If. And it's not a question of if we're going to read things. They're going to form and shape how we think. It's not a question of if we're going to read things that are going to impact the way that we view the world, we view relationships. It's a question of what we're going to read. That's going to impact and shape and form how we make decisions in life, how we process through conflicts, and how we continue to walk with Jesus so the outline for tonight is, is very simple. First, what I want to look at is why it is important to read the Bible. Why should we care about it? What does the Bible have to say about the Bible? Tonight, specifically, we're going to look at what Jesus says about the Bible. Secondly, I want to unpack how we get it wrong. Are there ways in which we, we come to Scripture and we actually read it either incorrectly, we come with a poor heart posture, uh, we, we come to it with an intellectual pursuit when it's actually a heart-level formation. And lastly, very practically, I want us to walk out of here with, with tangible things to grab onto to say, this is how I can read the Bible, and you can start as early as tonight or tomorrow morning with some of the practical things that we'll chat through this evening. So pick me up in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. We're going to cruise through um, 13 through 48. By God's grace, we'll be out of here on time. All right, verse 13. This is on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is just resurrected from the dead, and there's two disciples who are walking on this road, and they're having a pretty wild conversation, and there's a, a pretty interesting fellow who's going to come in to this discussion. Verse 13. That day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, this is nuts, drew near with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So number one, why it is important. Why it is important that we have 
uh, a daily discipline as we sit with God in his word. Why should we care about the Bible? Let's look at verses 25 and 26 again. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's important, number one, because we as Christians are forgetful. We're forgetful people. We're forgetful human beings. You see, these men had already forgotten the importance of the gospel story. Okay, so they knew the prophecies. They knew what Jesus had come to do. But they'd already forgotten the overarching truth. The back half of verse 17, Scripture says that they're actually looking down sad. They're standing still, just looking sad. They had already forgotten the reality of what Jesus has come to do. And it would be foolish for us to think that this isn't a reality for us either. I I would wager to say that a daily realignment to God's word is actually what each and every one of us needs. Not weekly, it's important to gather at Salt Company or at church to hear the public teaching of God's word, to fellowship and to worship. But there's, there's a need in our lives to have daily realignment to God's word. Because one degree off course matters. One degree off course matters. A, a mentor of mine it was a, a former pilot for American Airlines, and he told me that uh, for every one degree that a plane is off course, for every mile that you fly, you will miss your targeted landing spot by 92 feet. So for just one degree off course, every mile that you fly, you'll be off course by 92 feet. Now, if you run the calculus on that and carry the one, as you're flying from JFK in New York all the way to the West Coast, to LAX in Los Angeles, if you start one degree off on the East Coast and you're flying west, you will end up 40 miles off course in the Pacific Ocean. And so some of us are are sitting here tonight wondering, how in the world did I get trapped in this sin struggle? How in the world have I, I found myself watching this thing, having this conflict, thinking this way? Well, it's because we, we're not aligned. We've allowed the one degree to turn into two and to three, and over years and months of life, that one degree, as we're not realigned daily, has big implications in our walk with Jesus. And so the Bible has been given to us to be reminded of the truths of Jesus and to cling to the truths of Jesus. And ultimately, it's, it's about fellowship and communion. That it's not, as we'll see in just a moment, it's not like a legalistic checklist. It's actually a, ch- a chance to encounter Jesus. It's a chance to encounter God, to hear his heartbeat for his people, to see the character of God on display. And the second thing about why it's important is the Bible is all about Jesus. It's partially about you to some degree, but it's really about the heaven rescue mission that Jesus has come on. Let's look at verse 27. This is one of the craziest verses in the Bible. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning, get this, himself. The whole entire Bible is about Jesus. And you can imagine this scene, right? I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. They're like, Jesus, you know, what's, and he, they don't know it's him yet, but he starts to unpack what Moses has written in the first five books of the Bible. The Psalms, the prophecies, he goes, that was me. You didn't see it, this was me. You didn't see it, this was me. 
and just like their minds are blown. They're starting to connect all these Jesus dots, and they see how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, all the Old Testament verses. He's opening their minds to the scriptures. He's saying all these things that Moses wrote and these prophets wrote, they're actually pointing to me. I'm the guy. This whole entire story is about me and me coming to you to reconcile you. In John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says, talking to the Pharisees who are running into him again and, and calling him a liar, he says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. When Moses writes in the Old Testament, he's writing about Jesus. When there's different prophecies about someone who's to come, who's going to be a better person, a better Adam, a better whatever, Moses is talking about Jesus. And friends, there's over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfills from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We could spend hours. You can just Google search all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and just scroll. The little thing on the side is like this tiny. And you can see every single one of the ones that he fulfills. Over 300. But he probably would have shared with them a couple key ones. These are three that Jesus almost certainly would have shared. It's not explicit in the text, but we could probably assume, based on the importance of, of the resurrection, his prophecies, and the sufferings of Jesus, he probably would have, would have said, hey, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, that Moses wrote about a prophet who's going to come, who's going to die, and then bring reconciliation for sins, that's me. Deuteronomy 18. The second one. The suffering servant. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a huge passage in the Old Testament, all about the, the lamb who was slain. The sheep before his shears is silent. This is Jesus. And again, the, the importance of the resurrection that it's prophesied. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53. These are things that Jesus was, was explaining to them that Moses and these Old Testament writers had written about. The entire Old Testament is anticipating me. Because, friends, the Bible is one gigantic, grand love story of God from creation until now. And the one singular thread that ties it all together, the main idea, the big theme, the central point that holds the entire Bible together. It's not 66 rando books that were just put together by a bunch of guys at a council back in 300-whatever. It's, it's the heavenly rescue mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to save righteous people. He came to save sinners, all of which we are. And the whole entire story has been captured for us to be reminded every single day that Jesus has come for us. He's come for our hearts. He's come for our lives. He's come to be Lord and Savior. So we know the Bible's important, but how, how do we get it wrong? That's the second thing I want to talk through, is how, how do we get it wrong? Some of us may be new to the Bible. Tonight might be the first time you're opening it. Some of us, you've been sitting with the Bible for a while, and you're like, Zach, I, I know these stories. I, I, I went to VBS. I went to Sunday school. I know the memory verses. I get it. I know how to read the Bible. How do we get it wrong? The first, the first way we get it wrong um, Looking at verses 25 and 26, again, there's just so much packed into these three verses. Jesus is calling, he said, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, asking in a question, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Very simply, friends, it's that we don't read it. It's just that we don't read the Bible. You see, friend, the, the, the Jewish men on this 
this journey, this path, they're puzzled and confused. They're saddened by the realities of the unfolding events. Man, we thought Jesus was going to overcome the world, bringing hellfire and brimstone. Come on, Jesus. Where's the chariots? And then he's on the cross. Our leaders murdered publicly. It's backwards. This isn't the Savior that I thought we were going to have. They're puzzled. They're confused. See, friends, we too, when we're puzzled and confused by life, there's the, the difficulties, the questions, the wrestlings, the what have yous. We can choose to go to a whole host of different places for pretty garbage advice. We can go to, to worldly places. We can go to just what we think is right, what people have told us. And far too often, we go to the wrong source for our ultimate authoritative help. We ask friends, we ask parents, we ask mentors, and I'm not discounting that. The Bible actually says in an abundance of counselors, a plan flourishes. And so I'm not saying don't talk to your discipler for wisdom. I'm not saying don't talk to your parents or your friends. I'm not saying don't talk to the people in this room for wisdom and guidance. But the ultimate source of authority, the ultimate source of guidance is God's word. It's been given to us to read. Far too often we hop on the Googs and just search how to whatever. When we have God's entire counsel in front of us to put our face in, to encounter Jesus. God is there to guide us. He's given us his book, but we choose to let it sit on a shelf collecting dust. A closed Bible does nothing actually is symbolizing a closed heart to God. Paul tells his young pastor in training Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be equipped for every good work, not just some, but every good work. When we don't read God's word, we're missing out. We're missing out on the truth and guidance in life that we need to walk with Jesus. We're cutting ourselves short. Guys, Jesus has just revealed in verse 22 that the Bible's all about him. And if you want to be more like Jesus, you read the Bible. It's the roadmap. Study him in the scriptures. So often, we have the roadmap, and we're driving really nicely on the road, and then something happens, and we just start wandering in the wilderness trying to find something that's already there in the path of life, in the scriptures. We need to go searching for it. It's right here. It's sufficient for conflicts, for uncertainties, for trying to discern between true and falsehood for how to date someone, for how to engage in marriage, for how to engage in the workplace, for how to engage with your friends, for how to engage with non-believers. The counsel of God is sufficient. And if you don't believe it is, it's, it's a harsh reality, but I don't think you've read it enough. And the second way that I think that we can get this wrong is that we take the wrong approach. When we come to Scripture, we, we don't come with the correct heart posture, we come with an incorrect heart posture. Again, even though the Jewish men understood the prophecies about Jesus, they failed to truly understand that Jesus' suffering was actually his path to glory. They couldn't understand why God didn't just intervene, save Jesus from the cross. 
They were too caught up in the political power that they were hoping Jesus would bring and the military might that would have been very common in this historical era. They were blind to the kingdom values of heaven, that Jesus' suffering was actually him entering into glory. And we too can take the wrong approach and have a poor heart posture when it comes to God's word. I want to present nine different ways with the help from a, a pastor friend of mine that we can have a poor heart posture when we come to God's word. The first one is the warm fuzzies approach to reading the Bible. The warm fuzzies approach, when we read the Bible to feel good about ourselves. All right, so we're just, we're just hopping in. We're saying, man, we're close to God. I'm just trying to encounter God. I'm just trying to surround myself with like God-esque things. I, just, I want to feel some warm fuzzies inside of me. And it reads to, to, leads to frothy reading, meaning that I'm just trying to feel good about myself. This is a, an incorrect approach to reading scripture. The second approach that's incorrect is the grumpy approach. Reading the Bible to get God off of my back. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. This is the, the grumpy approach as a result of legalistic checklist Christianity. I'm just supposed to read it. It's like, there it is, that Christianity, just a bunch of rules I'm supposed to follow. So I'm grumpy when I come to God's word because my heart is not aligned to needing Jesus. And that results in resentful reading. Your Bible reading is now a chore. How about the goldmine approach? Trying to find some golden nugget of wisdom or verse that speaks very specifically to your stage or season of life. Trying to make sense of a struggle in life. And you're taking verses out of context. You're trying to see if it's going to apply to you. Leads to confused reading. Because you're not reading the whole counsel of God. And you're confused as you dive into God's word. How about the hero approach? The Bible is just a big moral hall of fame. It gives us person after person, right? Dare to be a Daniel. Be like King David. Ladies, how about Ruth and Esther? That's who you're supposed to model your life after. These are the biblical characters, the hall of faith, the hall of fame, people to imitate. And what this does is it actually leads to despairing reading. Because you're actually trying to model your life after a sinful person. The only perfect person that ever existed in the entire Bible was Jesus Christ. So if we're ever going to be coming into the Bible, we should be looking for Christ. Number five is the rules approach. Again, reading the Bible for commands to obey. And specifically with this one, it's a subtle self-justification. I'm going I'm to come into the Bible, I'm going to follow the rules to self-justify myself compared to somebody else who's not doing it. And then it leads to pharisaical reading because you're actually trying to reinforce and give yourself a sense of religious superiority and goodness. We got four more. The next one's the Indiana Jones approach. Reading it purely as a Middle Eastern ancient document that has absolutely zero implications for our modern day. It's just a dead text, Zach. It's, just, it's an old book. It's just something to be studied for academic purposes. There's some cool poems in there, some good stories about Jesus, but none of that really happened. What this is going to lead to is board reading, because nobody likes reading history textbooks. The magic eight ball approach, reading the Bible as a roadmap, telling me where to work, who to marry, and where to go after college. We just like shake the Bible like an eight ball and open it up and we go, I guess I'm going to Jerusalem because I flipped to Acts 1, right? <laughs> I've totally done this before, it's all right. 
All right, so the Magic 8-Ball approach. We're going to shake the Bible, open it up, and whatever verse we look at first, that's who we're going to marry. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do next. And this leads to anxious reading. Again, we're taking verses out of context, just trying to feel good. The cherry-picking approach. Reading as a loose connection is of stories. They have no relation to each other. 66 separate books. The Gospels don't actually go together. And it has a pretty good feel-good ending because Jesus rises from the dead and Revelation at the end is pretty dope, right? So that leads to disconnected reading, however. Because the Bible, as we talked about, is one gigantic story. And if you're just cherry-picking different stories, you're not going to get the whole counsel of God. And lastly, the doctrine approach, which is reading the Bible solely as a theological book, get this, to find ammunition to shoot at an atheist at your next Starbucks date to try and convince him that Christianity is real. So we're, just, we're trying to find theological ammo to fire at the non-believers because we're coming in with a doctrine approach. That leads to cold reading because it's all in your head. The distance between heaven and hell is the distance between your heart and your head. Scripture's got to get into your heart. If it stays in your head, you're just a seminary professor. Now, to be sure, there is some truth in each of these, if we're honest. There's some truth in each of these. But to make it the dominant approach is to turn the Bible into a book it was never meant to be. Let's continue on in this narrative. We're going to blitz to the next 15 verses. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And Jesus, he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to him. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So now they know it's Jesus. But doggone it, and he vanished right from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven other disciples, and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see proof of the resurrection. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And we said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And when they have still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, I love this, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Guys, Jesus was hungry, okay? So what's happening here? They keep walking We don't have time to get into the theological implications of why when the bread broke, they're like, oh, it's Jesus, and then he's gone. Boom. All right, bummer. But what's happening here is he's walking with them, and he's he's appearing to them in verse 36. Some time has passed between 35 and 36. What Jesus is doing is he's saying peace to you because they're frightened, they're disturbed, that they just, the last time they saw Jesus, he was he was dead on a cross, and so he says, Touch me, it's it's me. I have this is I have hands and feet. You can see the nail scars, the resurrection actually happened. I'm here in the flesh. And I'm, I'm bringing the kingdom. So the, the, what's happening here now is, is he's going to transition in this next text that we're going to look at, which is the how we actually read the Bible. 
So number three is, is how we actually read the Bible, and this is where we're going to close. How do we actually read it? This is awesome. So verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, this is crazy, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So in verses 44 to 48, Jesus gives us the roadmap for how to read the Bible. And here it is. The first thing, it's, it's a gospel-centered approach. Verse 44, right? So he, he unpacks that everything written about me, again, in the law of Moses, must be fulfilled. So we read the Bible with a gospel-centered approach. Every time you come to Scripture, you drop into Habakkuk, you drop into the Psalms, you drop into Genesis, you drop into the New Testament. Jesus is every single verse. He's every single text. He's every single book because he's the unifying person in the whole entire Bible. So two questions you should ask put up three. Two questions you should ask every time you read the Bible. Number one, what do I learn in this passage about the God who provides redemption? Right? What do I learn about the God who provides redemption? His character, that he's loving, he's merciful, perhaps his wrath, the things that make him angry. What is, what, when I read in, in Leviticus and I read his law, what, what, what does that reveal about the God of redemption? What does he value? What does he care about? What makes his heart beat? What makes his heart break? What does this text reveal to me about the God who provides redemption? And secondly, what do I learn in this passage about the people, i.e. you and me, who need redemption? That we're sinners, that we're reconciled to God, that we can actually have life and joy and peace with him. So we're asking these questions to draw out the importance of the entire Bible is the gospel. The entire Bible is about Jesus coming to dwell with man. And these two questions that we ask when we come to the Bible will help us to kind of stay on track with what the Bible is actually teaching. And the second way that we read it is we, we get a grasp on God's word. This next slide here is a hand illustration that many of us have probably seen before. Um, hear, read, study, memorize, and meditate. Okay? So these are, these are five ways in which we can kind of, quote, get a grasp on the Bible. So friends, if, if we come to Salt Company, just pretend that here's on the, the thumb, because that's what I'm going to roll with. If we're just hearing the Word of God, I'm going to try really, I love this Bible, I'm really trying hard not to drop it. If we just hear the Word of God, I don't really have a great, I'm not even going to be able to do it, I don't have a great handle on my Bible, right? If I'm just only ever hearing God's Word, of course I'm doing a bunch of other stuff over here, but you get the idea. If I'm only hearing God's Word, this would drop on the floor if I move my right, my right hand. But man, if I'm, if I'm hearing God's Word and then I'm reading it, I got a little better grasp now. I'm hearing it. I'm reading it. I'm kind of taking some notes for myself, writing some observations from the text. Okay, so I'm hearing it and reading it, and now I'm studying it. I got three fingers now and only two off. I'm really starting to grasp God's word. I'm studying different words, different themes. I'm studying whole books. I'm studying the whole New Testament. I'm reading the Bible in a year, whatever it is. But man, you start memorizing scripture, you got four fingers on the Bible now. You're really getting a grasp of God's word. Psalm 119 tells us to, to let God's word penetrate our hearts, to have it bounce around in our minds. So now we're memorizing it. We got a really good grip. And then lastly, if we meditate on it, 
all five fingers. This isn't going anywhere. Getting a grasp on God's word. Five ways in which you can encounter God through his word. So we hear it right through the public reading of scripture. Salt company, church, in your community groups, reading the Bible out loud. When you're reading God's word in community with yourself, you just you got it open. You're reading it. You're taking in different verses. You're studying it, themes, understanding the context of the history of the Bible. Perhaps you're memorizing it, right? You're letting it dwell in your heart richly. It's on your mind. It's in your heart. And you're meditating on it, sitting with God, contemplating, letting it stew in your mind, slowing down to the pace of grace to let the good shepherd do his work in your heart through the power of the Spirit. I want to double tap on meditate because this is one that somebody is probably in the crowd right now thinking, isn't that like an Eastern like thing? You just kind of try and clear your brain of everything. And you're like, mm, you know, sitting on the ground with your legs crossed. So meditating on scripture. There's a Lectio Divinas. It's called divine reading. It's Latin for divine reading. It's, it's actually really just like it's prayerful reading of scripture. It's one of my favorite ways to encounter God in the Bible. There's kind of five movements that you do. You sit in silence for a little bit, which some of you guys are like, never done that before. Um, sit in silence for a little bit and just asking God to quiet your soul. And after that, you read the passage all the way through. And you're, you're kind of taking notes of, like, man, if it's a narrative, how is Jesus looking at these people? Are the people in trouble? Are the people struggling? Are they, what do they need from Jesus? You're kind of, you're kind of like imagining your mind the scene the characters, the different dynamics that are at play. And you read it a second time. And now you're meditating on it. You're noticing things. You're asking yourself, what does this reveal about the God who provides redemption and the people who need it? And you read it a third time. And this time you're praying through every verse. And you're, you're praising God for the way he interacts with the people and projecting that onto you, that God interacts with you in that same way. And then after that, you just sit and quiet, and you contemplate. Some of you guys, it's like pointless. You just con- it's like, no, you just sit there, and you just think about what God has done for you. You think about the truths that are in the text and how they actually apply to you. You slow down to the pace of grace, and you let the Bible dwell in you richly. Think of it as, as spiritual breathing, that we inhale Scripture, and then we exhale prayer, just praying right back the words to God that he's given us in the Bible. So spiritual breathing, inhale scripture, exhale prayer. And as we come to the Bible, we're not alone while we read it. That the Holy Spirit is actually, is helping us to discern and understand and, and figure out different things. Before we're so quick to run to a commentary, Google search, what does John 3.16 mean? We should probably say, hey, Holy Spirit, as, as I'm coming into this text... God, I don't understand this word. I don't understand this phrase. What does this mean? Would you give me wisdom? Would you guidance? Would you give me insight? And the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand. He's counseling us as we read God's word daily. So the first thing you should do before you ever even get to this grasping God's word is you're saying, Holy Spirit, help me understand. Give me wisdom. Give me guidance. Give me insight. Here's your five next steps of participation. So how do you, these are great. I want to study the Bible. I want to read it. I want to memorize it. But how do, we, how do I walk in out of here, do it tomorrow morning before my class? Number one is consider the race. Friends, let's, could we just ponder 
what it would actually be like to meet Jesus face to face? Like, what in the world would that look like? Nice. What in the world would that look like? Sitting across from Jesus, the one whom every single prophecy was fulfilled, and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, to hear, I love you, to hear whatever it is that he would say. Consider the race. It's a, it's a long life that we live, and we will never exhaust the fountain of Scripture. Number two is commit to a pace. Choose a plan. Choose a plan. Print it out and make it known. Ask your friends to hold you accountable. And if you need help, if you don't know, like, man, Bible reading plan, never heard of that. I don't really want to make one. Do I just read like a chapter a day or whatever? Um, I'm going to be sending out to your, your C group leaders uh, a folder with all kinds of one year, three year, couple chapter, like whatever. You can pick and choose and tailor whatever. If you need help getting a Bible reading plan, we will get that to you. What I want to emphasize here is, is consistency over intensity. If you haven't read the Bible in a while, you probably shouldn't be trying to chop away at five chapters tomorrow morning. That's going to be a little overwhelming. God is not concerned, nor is he impressed with how much scripture you read or know. He's not impressed by that. He's God. What he's concerned about is that you are in his word, that you are walking obediently with him, allowing him to be Lord, placing your affections upon Christ. So choose a plan. Print it, make it known, and have consistency. Number three is schedule a time. The same time. Every day. Distraction-free zone. Make it a non-negotiable. Protect it like your life depended on it, because in many ways it really does. I think that one of the best spiritual disciplines that anybody in this room could ever have is the discipline of calendaring and actually putting things into your calendar. If I don't put something in my Google Calendar, it doesn't get done. And so, yes, from 6 to 7.30, I have meet with God in my calendar. And I would encourage you to do the same thing, to put it on your calendar. Same time every day, protect it. Make it the one primary non-negotiable in your day that, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't do coffee at a cola at 7. I got to meet with Jesus. I, I, I can't do this. I got to meet with the Lord. Choose a place. Ideally, no distractions, remove clutter, make sure it's quiet, try and be alone if you can, so you can actually do Electio Divina, you can pray and read, and it's not awkward to pray out loud in the upstairs of a cola when everybody's got their headphones on. So create, or choose a place to meet with God, and lastly, create a space. If you struggle to wake up early, you might need to go to bed a little earlier. If you, you struggle to get the Bible off the shelf, put it on your desk already open to what you're going to read. It sounds cheesy, but like put your journal there, put your G2 pen, get your cup of coffee right there. I mean, the cup would be empty and you could fill it up in the morning, okay? But create, I mean, guys, we prepare for football games. We prepare for church. You guys study for exams. You study for homework. You do all these different things. Why do you not prepare to read God's word? Why do we not prepare to read God's word? So create a space. Get a nice little three hours of soaking in his presence in the background. And here's what I would say is, man, would you master the restart? If you miss a day, master the restart. Don't try and catch up in your reading plan. Just master the restart. Pick right back up the very next day. So, friends, it's, it's really not a question of if you're going to read things in your life that are going to shape and form you. It's a question of what you'll read. Not a question of if, but what. And the focus and end goal of reading the Bible is that you would, A, encounter Jesus, and B, enter into heartfelt worship of the king.
That's what it's all about. We're not coming in with the warm fuzzies approach. We're not coming in with the rules approach or the doctrine approach. We're coming in with a gospel-centered approach where we're reminded that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. But dead gum, are we more deeply loved than we could ever dream? You can read the Bible for the next 50 years and not even scratch the surface of the beauty and majesty and love of God. That a Savior who died on the cross for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, is still speaking to you today through his living and active word that's sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to soul and marrow, and it's teaching and equipping us to do every good work that we need to do in this life. It's a divine love letter that's revealing God's heart for you even still today. It's worth reading and rereading every single day. And I pray that not just for the next four years in college, you read through the Bible once a year and then you just never touch it again. But that when you are 80 years old, as a grandparent, you're opening up the Gospel of Luke, you're opening up Genesis, and you are teaching and exhorting your great-grandkids. Because the Bible is timeless and it will never grow old. Guys, I pray that as you open it, the Holy Spirit would guide you. I pray that it would be so sweet to your taste, that you'd be shaped and formed by it, that it would affect every decision that you make. That we would be so quick to run to the Bible and pray through Scripture more than any other source of wisdom or intellect. And friends, I hope that we can declare, like David in Psalm 119, he says, how can a young man or woman keep his or her way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have your word to guide us in life. Lord, I'm grateful for Psalm 25 that many a day as I've wrestled with next steps in life has, has guided me in the paths of life. I'm grateful for the words and Proverbs that are just truths that we can cling on to, to navigate the confusion and trials and struggles of life. And Jesus, I'm grateful that every morning I can wake up and read, read the gospel story afresh again. Perhaps the same passage for the hundredth time, but I can continue like a diamond, Jesus, as the light hits it a million different ways to see a new facet of your glory, a new facet of your beauty. And Father, I pray over these students that as they encounter you in their word, that as they ingrain this as a discipline, a rhythm, a habit in their daily life, that you would meet them there with your beauty, with your love, with your glory. Remind us daily, Lord Jesus, of our need 
to be with you, that you've given us the scriptures as a pathway for life. Keep us on the straight and narrow. So Heavenly Father, it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.